This is, uh, this is the beginning of a little sermon series. Um, basically, everybody is kind of getting back from vacation and holidays and hopefully from sickness um, this week and next. And so we're really kicking off a series that's going to take us through the next couple weeks. And uh, so let me, let me begin by asking the question, and let me ask you to answer this very truthfully, okay? Don't try to say something you think I want to hear, but just, you can just by a show of hands, tell me what you would think, how many of you would be interested in a series on church government? Just raise your hand, I think, see if you think it'd be interesting. Someone cackled, right? We have three people. <laughs> three people raised their hand when I said, what do you think about a series on church government, okay? Well, already Bob mentioned that today we're installing our second class of elders ever, and so I actually did think about how are we going to sort of introduce this idea of, you know, leadership and governance of the church. And the truth is, um, it's obviously by the show of hands, not something that that many people are really actively interested in, right? And, and so, you know, there are d- different types of church government. Some of you grew up in congregational churches where there's a vote. Some of you grew up in Catholic churches where there's a different form of church government. Some of you grew up in sort of an Episcopal background. There's all sorts of different types of church government. One of the things that I think you can see through Scripture is that uh, part of what Jesus did is he called these guys to be disciples, and he empowered them to be his uh, representatives going out into the world. Paul, basically, as he planted churches, we see that everywhere that Paul planted churches throughout the course of Acts, uh, that he established elders in each of those churches to then govern those churches, right? And so throughout the New Testament in particular, each of these um, leaders is called by different terms. They're called elders or presbyteros, which is where we get the term Presbyterian church government. Um, there, were, there was another term, episkopos, which is the Greek word for overseer, skopos, and epi, over, overseers. But the most common term and the one that probably has the most continuity for us in our day and age is the idea of a shepherd. And so we're really going to talk about the idea of, um, of the leadership of the church. But we're going to talk about it uh, through the lens of this idea of shepherd, right? And it was one of the most common terms even in Scripture because there's so much of a correlation between what leaders in the church should do and what shepherds did, right? I mean, shepherds lead, shepherds feed, and then shepherds protect. And so we're really going to be talking about those things over the course of the next three weeks. So it's going to be church governance, but it's not going to be in such a boring way. Hopefully, hopefully I'll do a good job of not making it too boring. And, and ultimately what we're going to do over and over again is we're going to see that Jesus is the real and true good shepherd after whom uh, all the leaders in the church are merely under shepherds, if that makes sense. Jesus is the true good shepherd. Let's take a moment now. Let's pray before we jump into this. Father, thank you for everybody that's in this room this morning. I thank you that um, from the very beginning of time, when you uh, began to write this play, um, you had this morning down as, uh, as a piece of the story. And so, Father, everyone that you ordained to be in this room or you invited or drew into this room this morning is here not by accident, but they're here because you invited them into this place. And so, Father, I pray that, um, that this morning that part of their story, part of your story, would be that they would have an encounter with you, the living God, and that they would uh, be able to see your son Jesus in a new way, that the Holy Spirit would work in their heart, that, that they might have a conversation with someone who is around them, and that that conversation might prick their hearts and, and give them a desire and a hope and a longing for something eternal, which can only be found in you and through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen. So uh, 
Some of you know this. Who you, some of you who know me know that I'm a, I'm a fisherman. I love fishing. And my favorite type of fishing is saltwater flats fishing. Okay? Saltwater flats fishing is basically where you have these big expanses of water. And the water's anywhere from you know, 12 inches up to maybe your hip. And you wade through this water filled with stingrays and sharks and all sorts of other good stuff. And you sight fish, right? You can fly fish. You can do it with a spinning reel. It's fantastic. I love it. And part of what I love about it is even if you don't catch a single fish, you see all sorts of wildlife. You see seagulls and you see dolphins and you, it's just, you know, it's just amazing. And frequently you get to be by yourself out in the middle of this expansively beautiful area. Well, you know, throughout the course of my life, I had, um, basically gone flats fishing by myself any number of times. And every now and then I'd get lucky and I'd catch a fish here. I'd catch a fish there, but I'd never hired a guide. I'd never, you know, hired somebody to take me really flats fishing. Well, one time I was down in Fort Myers, Florida, when I was the director of admissions at Covenant, and I'd spoken at a church, and as I was getting ready to leave the church, um, I was walking past the youth pastor as he was getting into his car, and on the front of his car, he had a, a license plate, and on the license plate was a tarpon, which is a type of saltwater fish, and I said, hey man, are you a fisherman? And he answered by saying, come with me. That's all I said, come with me. And I was like, okay. And so we, he, got, he closed his car door and I followed him and we walked into where his office was and he opened the door to his office and his entire office, the walls were covered with pictures of fish and pictures of him um, uh, taking people fishing. And he went on to explain to me that he was a fishing guide in the Florida Keys for seven years. And so by this point in time, I was just drooling. He said, by the way, if you ever want to go fishing and you're down here, I would be glad to take you. So are you kidding me? Like I can plan, I can stay an extra two days if you want to take me. And so believe it or not, right then and there, he said, all right, what are you doing tomorrow morning? I said, I'm going fishing with you, buddy. Anyway, and so I ended up spending the night with this guy, just met him, you know, kind of knew him a little bit, but I knew he was the pastor of this church, spent the night. We got up at like 4.30 in the morning and I went by a bait shop and bought live shrimp and blah, 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 and uh, hopped in his car. And, you know, at 5 a.m., we pulled up into onto the edge of this mangrove swamp, okay? I, I can't even really begin to describe it other than to say it's like a saltwater swamp. And so we pulled up to the edge of this mangrove swamp and we started getting out of the truck. It's essentially pitch black still because it's early, early in the morning. And uh, there was a little bit of a pathway that sort of entered down into these, these mangroves. And he said, all right. He said, How? he said, are you pretty brave? I was like, I don't know, maybe. And he said, uh, do you mind snakes? And I was like, depends. How about alligators? Well, you know, anyway, he's like, just follow me. All right. And so he basically here again, it's you know, dark early in the morning in the midst of this mangroves. And he dives down into this path, going down to these mangroves in the swamp. And, you know, part of the way we were walking through water that was about the color of coffee, right? It's about this deep. And so you're ankle deep in it. And every now and then as we were walking with a flashlight, it was, again, pretty dark in there. He'd point out something and say, hey, there's a snake right there. You know, follow me and go around this side of the path. Or we'd be shining, you know, the light in the darkness. and There'd be some eyes over here. And he'd go, that's probably an alligator. He said, just follow me. We'll go over here to the left a little bit. And it was about a mile walk through this mangrove swamp. And, uh, you know, we walked through it, trudging through mud, trudging through water. We went through places where the mud was so sticky. He said, you need to tie your shoes on really tightly or the, you know, the muck will pull them off. And uh, we walked further, we walked further. We got to one section where he said, hey, are you afraid to kind of swim through some water? And he said, you know, chances are there's nothing. But, you know, there are alligators, there are snakes. They'll drop out of the mangroves occasionally. And so he said, just hold your fishing pole and your tackle box over your head, and you'll kind of have to swim over some deep spots. Again, it's practically dark. I mean, it's getting a little bit lighter by this point in time. And I was out there thinking, what am I doing? Like, I am nuts. And so sure enough, we went through some areas where the water was literally over my head, which is not saying much, Wilson. I get that. Anyway... <laughs> 
It's like three feet deep. And I was rubbing my nostrils. Thank you. Anyway, making my way through the swamp. We make it through this, these deep holes. We kind of go through all... And it's just psycho, psycho. Finally, we get to this area where the water gets a little clearer and it gets a little bit shallower. And up in front of us is this, this, basically this giant sand dune. And, uh, and we started trudging up the sand dune. And when we got to the top of the sand dune, we saw a picture that looked a little bit like this, um, which I think is in the PowerPoint. You can't really see, it's not a great picture, but we came up over this hill and just looked out and saw these expansive and utterly beautiful saltwater flats. It was amazing, just gorgeous. There were seagulls everywhere. The water was moving. It was crystal clear. It was just alive. It was fantastic. He had taken me to one of the most beautiful places I'd ever been. He led me to this place. Now, if you think about it for a second, and you can go ahead and skip past that, Sam. If you think about it for a second, if I had just met some random guy and he said, oh, by the way, I know where there's a really good fishing spot. You have to walk about a mile, but just park your car here and sort of trudge on in. And once you get to the end of this mile, it'd be great fishing. Well, how long would it have taken me to turn around and say, I'm not doing this? You know, the first snake I saw, I'd have been like, sorry, you know, I'm going to go to a catfish pond somewhere, you know, or the first time I saw an alligator, I'll be like, I'm out of here. But because my buddy Rich Worley led me through this mangrove swamp, it enabled me to make it to the, one of the most beautiful places and one of the most amazing experiences I'd ever experienced. And again, the point is this. The point is that leadership makes all the difference in the world. If I'd tried to do that on my own, I would have never made it. But the reason I was able to get to this place is because I was led by someone that I trusted, someone that actually cared for me, wanted me to experience something great, someone who pushed me past what I would have ordinarily gone through myself, and someone who ultimately didn't uh, ask me to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. Leadership makes all the difference in the world. Jesus knew that. Jesus modeled that. Jesus talked about leadership. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 15 is a passage of scripture that Jesus, we call the good shepherd, basically the passage of the good shepherd. And let me just go ahead and tell you this, is that this passage we're going to read about in a minute is, uh, is the proof text for any number of different things. It's a proof text for, for particular atonement. It's a proof text for um, salvation. It's a proof text for, for Jesus um, and his divinity, where he says, I am. It's one of the I am statements. And it's a proof text ultimately for Jesus saying, I'm the true leader. I'm the true shepherd. I'm the one you need to follow. I'm the one that you need to trust. And so as a result of that, we're going to use this passage of scripture this morning to very quickly look at this picture of of leadership. And again, the point in all of this is to say that uh, Jesus is the true shepherd, but when he empowers us, those of us who are leaders in the church and our families, we're under shepherds. We're merely following in the footsteps of the true leader, our true good shepherd, Jesus. Let's read this passage of scripture. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. Jesus is speaking. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they didn't understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life 
and have it to the full. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who's a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep. Now, again, over the next three weeks, we're going to come, keep coming back to this passage of scripture. But today, again, we're talking about uh, just a, a couple of takeaways on what it looks like to be a good and a healthy leader. But before we get to that, let's take a moment and let's acknowledge that part of what Jesus is doing here is he's warning us. He's saying that in the church 2000 years ago and in the church today, we need to beware be wary of destructive and self-serving leaders. We're going to look at a section of verses from this passage that will be up on the screen. He says this, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. He who's a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. All right. Now, let me just be very frank with you up front and say that really in context here, Jesus is talking about religious leadership. He's talking about the leadership of the Jews in the day and, uh, and, and probably was explicitly thinking about the Pharisees and maybe secondarily, he was thinking about a group called the Sadducees and maybe the Herodians, three different leadership groups over the Jews of the day, each of which or each of whom had motives varying from power right? A desire to have power. Some people lead because they want to be powerful uh, to control. Some people are leaders because they want to control. They feel safer when they can kind of manipulate everything and everyone around them all the way to wealth. And each of these different groups really represented one of those different motives of leadership. And frankly, that doesn't sound all that unfamiliar to us today, whether it's inside the church or outside of the church, there are people who are in leadership all over the place for personal gain, for comfort, for the need to control, for power. And they're not just in the world, they're also in the church. And again, that's why Jesus is telling his disciples this. He's saying, you need to watch out for these bad and destructive leaders, if that makes sense. Now, interestingly, throughout the New Testament, over and over again, the mark of this unhealthy, destructive leadership, there's any number of different ways it can play out. But one of the most consistent uh, themes of this destructive leadership is they taught what we would call legalism or salvation by works, salvation by being good or salvation by not being too bad. Ultimately, it's self-salvation. This is why Paul said in Galatians chapter one, verses eight through nine, Paul said this, but if even we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Does that make sense? What Paul is saying is, he's saying various groups enter into the church and throughout the course of history, what these groups will do is they will seek to probably not intentionally, but unintentionally, they'll undermine the gospel by teaching some form of self-salvation. So here are a couple forms. There's something called moral self-salvation. And in moral self-salvation, what you do, there's two different forms of it. One form of moral self-salvation is where you say, I'm not too bad. I haven't done too many bad things. Therefore, I'm acceptable to God, right? So if I had a microphone and a camera and I walked around to churches or out on the street of Rome, Georgia today, and I said, hey, if you were to meet God today and stand before you know, the throne of heaven 
and God were to say, why would I let you in? There are a lot of people who would say, well, I haven't been too bad, right? It's the absence of badness in my life. That's one form of moral self-salvation. I try to not be too bad. But another type of moral self-salvation is sort of the flip side. And it's where people would say, well, I've been really good. And this is more a type of self-salvation that exists in the context of the church and evangelical and Orthodox churches. It was my personal favorite form of, of self-salvation throughout the first, you know, 23 years of my life. It's where people say, well, you know, I'm really involved in mercy and justice, right? And, and I volunteer at my church and I work with the youth group and I pray a lot and I, you know, and I'm really good and I do all these things. And essentially what you say is not only do I have a particular absence of badness in my life, but I've got this presence of goodness in my life. So therefore God accept me because I'm, I'm good because I do mercy and justice because I care about the poor because I do all these things. They're all good things. The absence of badness, good. I affirm it. The presence of goodness, also good. I also affirm it. But if you teach both of those things as a path to salvation, then those things undermine the gospel, right? Even within the context of the church, there's not only moral self-salvation, but there's theological self-salvation. That exists in our particular tradition where basically we say, well, I'm acceptable to God because I believe all the right stuff because my doctrine and theology is all right. It's all lined up. It's all crystal clear. Therefore, God will accept me. The truth is what the gospel teaches is that I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion, self-salvation always teaches I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Does that make sense? And so as, uh, as Bob mentioned earlier today, we're bringing in the second class of elders into Seven Hills Fellowship. There's all these criteria for leaders that, uh, that they have to meet. The Bible lists these, these criteria in 1 Peter 5 and Titus 1 and, uh, and 1 Timothy. And, and so character is a big piece of this. These are people who have to have good character, right? It's very clear. There's a big list of what those things are. These people have to agree with the mission, vision, values of Seven Hills Fellowship. But the number one thing that they have to do is they have to embrace the gospel into the depths of their being. And the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news, right? The gospel is, I am accepted, therefore I obey. And so much of what we did with these men was we tried to find out, do you believe the gospel into the depths of your being? Because if you're going to be a leader in the church of God, we have to make sure that all you're ever going to do is push people to Jesus over and over and over again. Does that make sense? And so the danger of bad leadership, the danger of destructive leadership for any number of different reasons. That's part of what Jesus talks about here. The second thing that we see Jesus talking about is the presence of good leadership. And part of what Jesus says here is in the same way we need to beware or be wary of bad leadership, we need to submit ourselves to healthy and self-sacrificial leadership. Look at verses three and four. He goes on to say this, says he calls his own sheep by name. And obviously he's talking about the good shepherd or Jesus here, but he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. And so what are some of the traits of good, healthy leadership here? Now, let me, let me call time out and say this is there's effective leadership and there's good leadership. And those are two different things. Hitler, incredibly effective leader. Right? I don't think you can argue with that, but this is not what Jesus is talking about here. You can, you can be effective, but not good. Howard Schultz, the guy that started the Starbucks, if you ever read any of his books, very effective, maybe not necessarily somebody who would match up to what Jesus models in scripture. Right? Same thing with Steve Jobs, super effective leader, but was he a good leader? Was he a Christ-like leader? And, uh, and so here are the examples, or here are the takeaways of what good leadership looks like. First, good leaders 
know and care for those that they are leading. So good leaders, right, in the church, Jesus is our ultimate leader. They know and they care for those that are leading. What we see in this passage is that he calls them by name. There's this picture of this shepherd having a, a real relationship with the sheep, right? Of knowing them, calling them by name, by calling them out, by caring for them. Shepherds devoted their lives really to caring for these little sheep and making sure that they were safe and making sure that they were healthy and making sure that they were fed, knowing them by name. Uh, there's a book by H.V. Morton that came out in the 19th century uh, called In the Steps of the Master. He was in, uh, in Israel, and he was on a tour, sort of studying uh, the life and the history of that area. And uh, when he was out there, he was with a guide, and the guide was talking to him about how, how different shepherding was in Europe versus how it operated in the ancient Near East. And he said he woke up one morning, and uh, his guide was sitting by the fire already. And his guide said, in that cave over there, last night, two shepherds took their flocks into this cave. And they both sort of got into this cave and their flocks intermingled. And he said, they're getting ready. One of them's getting ready to come out in a moment. I want you to watch what happens. And so H.V. Uh, Morton sitting there with this guide sort of demonstrating what, or showing him what's happening. And one shepherd came out and went about 40 yards away from the mouth of the cave. And he began calling his sheep. And one by one, his little sheep came out and they unintermingled uh, or disentangled from the other herd of sheep in there until all of his own sheep were there. And he remembered saying, this is an, it's sort of amazing to see what a close relationship that these sheep had with the shepherd. So much so that not only did he know them, but they knew his voice, right? And Jesus modeled this type of leadership with the disciples. He, he wasn't a power hungry control freak. who was simply using the disciples for what he could get. Rather, it was clear to them that he cared for them, that he loved them. And one of the reasons we're installing the second class of elders simultaneously and simultaneously beginning community groups is because as we have a leadership here at Seven Hills Fellowship, as these people come on and serve as elders and shepherds, we want them to have a relationship with you. We want them to know you. We want them to care for you. And we've got to create some context. So the context we chose was this context of community groups. And so again, I would echo Bob this morning when I say, we want to take care of you. We want to know you. We don't want to drop the ball. We don't want to miss out on you. We want to put you in a, in a context with people who know you, who care for you, who love you. That's one of the signs of good leadership is that they care and know for those that they're leading. Second sign of good leadership is that good leaders take their people out of their comfort zone, right? We see in this passage that it says that the shepherd leads them out, right? He takes them out. And so they're in this wonderfully comfortable, safe environment, right? Inside of a sheep pen, inside of a cave, right? They're snuggled down on the ground for warmth. You know, there's no wolves in there. It's safe. It's careful. It's warm. It's all of these things. And yet what good leadership does is it basically says, I need to invite you out of your safety and comfort zone out into the world where you're going to thrive, where you're going to serve, where you need to live. You can't simply stay in that safe place. And good leaders do that. Good leaders pull people out of their comfort zones. So I had been um, working out on my own for about 10 years. And, uh, you know, typically when I worked out, it was in the context of my own home, push-ups, sit-ups, whatever. You know, and I met with... Um, various degrees of success. You can look at me and see that the success I had was minimal. And, um, but I was consistent with working out. Well, about five months ago, uh, I started doing something called CrossFit with Jeff Holloway, who I believe is here this morning. And one of the things I can tell you about having a leader, somebody who oversees your physical progress working out, is that part of what they do is they take you out of their comfort zone, right? 
And so in the privacy of my own home, I would do 30 air squats while I was watching TV. In CrossFit, I'll do 130 air squats. Does that make sense? You know, at home, I would do eh, 50 push-ups. In CrossFit, Jeff Holloway makes me do 100 push-ups. Does that make sense? In other words, part of what a good leader does is a good leader takes someone out of their comfort zone and forces them to do things that they don't really want to do and frankly wouldn't do on their own, but in the long run, they're exactly the things that they need. That's what good leadership does. That's what Jesus did. One of my favorite stories um, in the New Testament is when uh, Jesus calls Levi the tax collector, and uh, he calls Levi, and then Levi throws a big party, you know, and he invites all of his friends. And in the party, you know, there are prostitutes, and there are tax collectors, and there are people that are outsiders. And then in the midst of the party, there's Peter, right? You know, Mr. Goody Two Shoes, Ultra Jew Peter is in the midst of this party, you know, rubbing shoulders with prostitutes, right? And you can just imagine him going, what is my wife going to think when she hears that I was at this party? But what Jesus did is he basically said, as your leader, I need to invite you into uncomfortable circumstances and uncomfortable places. It's not comfortable to love people who aren't lovable. But Jesus, as a good leader, did just that. In the same way, we, as the leadership of Seven Hills Fellowship, need to to invite you out of your comfort zones into recognizing your own sinfulness. That's not comfortable. You don't want to do that, but it's something that's good for you. We want to lead you into reliance upon the gospel, not your own good works. That's not comfortable, but it's ultimately good for you. We need to lead you into service both inside of and outside of the church. We need to invite you into real relationships with real people. Again, not necessarily comfortable, but it's exactly what you need. Healthy leadership Uh, takes people out of their comfort zones into places where they're going to thrive and grow. Last thing we see about good leaders, again, modeled by Jesus, is that good leaders lead by example, and they don't ask their people to do anything that they wouldn't do or haven't done themselves. Jesus, it says in this passage that he goes on ahead of them. Like Rich Worley walked ahead of me through this mangrove swamp. In the same way, Jesus walked before the disciples, leading them and guiding them and doing everything that he was preparing to ask them to do in the same way we as a leadership of Seven Hills Fellowship should do the same thing. Healthy leadership uh, never, ever asks people to do something they're not willing to do themselves. Um, What you think about this person or not is irrelevant to me, but Napoleon was a fantastic leader, maybe more effective than good, but he may have been a little bit of both. And there's a great story where Napoleon was leading his French troops um, to attack Italy. And they, they decided to march through the Alps. Maybe some of you guys have read this story before. It's really amazing. And they go, they're basically going over the Alps between um, France and Italy. And uh, it's, you know, this pass is called the St. Bernard Pass. It's covered with snow. It's freezing. Napoleon is riding his horse. And uh, basically they're riding through this pass. And there's this one soldier who keeps stumbling because he's, you know, basically exhausted and he's freezing in the snow. And and there's this great story of Napoleon getting down off of his horse and inviting his soldier who's falling and stumbling in the snow. And he basically says, here, you get up on my horse and you ride the horse. And then Napoleon, rather than hijacking somebody else's horse, continues to walk through the snow on foot in the place of the soldier. In other words, he was willing to do the very thing that he was asking his men to do, right? It's a sign of a, of a great leader is that they're not going to ask you to do something not, they're not willing to do themselves. They're going to lead by example. There's an old saying in leadership which says, if it's to be, it has to begin with me. And, and so the leadership of Seven Hills Fellowship can't just say, hey, go, go love people who are unlovable. We need to model loving people who are unlovable. 
the leadership of Seven Hills Fellowship can't simply say, hey, you need to go p- tell people about Jesus, that tell them that he is the pathway to, to eternal life, a relationship with the Heavenly Father, if they're not willing to model it themselves. One of the things, again, that we looked at with this new class of elders was ensuring that they were actively doing these very things, that they were sharing the gospel, that they were discipling, that they were serving at Seven Hills Fellowship. Let me pause here for a second. Let me go back to the, the story I told at the very beginning about walking through the mangrove swamp with my buddy and standing on that sand dune as we overlooked these salt flats. And uh, I'll finish the story. So, uh, cause we even had, hadn't caught any fish by this point in the, in the story. So we're standing on the top of this uh, sand dune overlooking these flats. And my buddy, Rich Worley said, Hey, follow me. And uh, you know, I'm going to show you how to tie the, the hook on your line. I'm going to show you how to put the shrimp. I'm going to tie it, show you how to do the lure. And then just follow me. And we're going to wade out through this water. We began wading out through these shallows again, anywhere from, you know, 18 inches deep up to sort of, you know, mid thigh level for me. And, uh, and as we were wandering around, he, I would sort of follow him and every now and then he'd stop and he'd point over there and he'd say, see that, that the water right there, there's something sticking out of the water. He said, he said, you might think that that's a redfish tail, but it's actually a stingray sort of the side of their fin. Don't cast over there. All right. He said, go this way. And so he led me over this direction and he said, see that little ripple in the water. That's probably where, you know, where some fish are feeding. And he said, just flip your little shrimp over there. I flipped my shrimp over, caught a fish. And so he spent the rest of that day on into the evening till the sun was setting. We spent the whole day out there fishing out there on this uh, area of flats. We caught snook, we caught redfish, we caught all these fish. And this was one of the fish that he had me catch. You can kind of see sort of the mangroves behind me there. It's a good thing it's not too sharp of a picture because it was in one of my chubby faces and my face is the only thing bigger than the fish in the picture. Anyway, <laughs> but it was about a 15 pound redfish that I caught in literally about 10 inches of water. Its back was sticking out of the water. And the reason I show you this is to say that day out on the saltwater flats was literally one of the best days of my life. It was one of the best experiences of my life. And the only reason that I got to experience it was because I entrusted myself to a good leader, right? The leadership of Seven Hills Fellowship is sometimes going to be good, is occasionally going to be effective, but the leadership of Jesus is perfect. He is our ultimate and true good shepherd. And he is going to lead you to that life that is truly life, which is exactly why he could say what he says here in verses nine and 10. Jesus says this, I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Only Jesus can save you. Your job can't save you. Your husband can't save you. Your children can't save you, but your good shepherd can save you. He, that person who follows him will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. If you try to make anything else, your shepherd, if you try to make anything else, your leader other than Jesus, ultimately that thing will destroy you. Jesus goes on to say, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Only Jesus sets you free to be truly human, right? Only a relationship with Jesus will set you free to be that the person that he created you to be, and he will lead you to experience that life that is truly life. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus. I thank you that he uh, is the great shepherd um, who leads us, um, who feeds us, but who also protects us. And so, Father, I pray that um, our continued fidelity uh, would be to your son. Father, I pray that we would uh, follow him into areas of discomfort and uh, areas that are scary. Uh, Father, I pray that we would believe that your son Jesus has our best interest in mind. 
And Father, I pray that over and over again that um, when we doubt and when we fail, we would remember uh, that Jesus went before us, leading us ultimately not only to the cross, but to the throne of uh, his heavenly father, you, our heavenly father. And so, Father, we pray these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.